0: Gentlemen, good evening. Always a pleasure and i 'm humbled to be here with you tonight, um, sharing the stage with some just incredibly godly men. They say um, rain on a wedding day is good luck well i 'm here to say that rain on men 's conference is a spirit filled weekend <laughs> guys we 're going to be at Luke chapter nineteen, so if we could, since guys are going to be looking at their Bibles, if we could get their lights on. Um, I'd appreciate it. The theme of this year's conference is "occupy till he comes." So the idea of of doing business, holding ground, doing it for what God's called us to do, not compromising, and in in Luke. Chapter 19, the passage that we're going to read tonight, we're going to go over the idea of investing in the kingdom of God, being good stewards of those things. Tomorrow you're going to hear teachings. You're going to hear teachings on um, holding ground in the public eye, holding ground in the culture that we live in, holding ground in the church, holding ground in the home holding ground in the workplace, and then Pastor Ray's gonna top it all off with taking ground. Because it's not only do we have to occupy and hold on to the truths in which God gave us, but we are supposed to advance the kingdom of God. The T-shirts and the flyers, those men holding the American flag, those, that, that was inspired by the brave men in World War II in the West Pacific over the Battle of Iwo Jima. Now, if you'll just indulge me for a few minutes, I'm gonna do a little bit of a, a history lesson and I hope to tie it in towards the end. The Battle of Iwo Jima was, was back in the 1940s. Germany had fallen and Japan had taken off. Many of those warriors who were in, the, in Europe now went to the West Pacific and they were going what was called the Island Hopping Campaign. They were jumping from island to island, taking ground after taking ground, heading towards mainland Japan. Each of these islands, Tarawa, Peleliu, Saipan, Guam, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, each one of these were such small islands, but they led to a mass amounts of casualties. Tarawa, 109 marines were killed, 2,300 were wounded. In Peleliu, 1,300 marines were killed, 5,400 were wounded. Saipan, 3,000 marines were killed, 13,000 was wounded. But Iwo Jima, that was the, the most fierce battle of all of them. Think about this, our small town of Berlin has a population of about 7,000 people. Iwo Jima, and it's 18 18 square miles. The island of Iwo Jima is eight square miles, more than half the size. Yet there were 70,000 Marines and 18,000 Japanese battling with one another. Coming in waves, in 36 days of fighting, 7,000 Marines were killed and 20,000 of them were wounded. But the pinnacle came when they raised the American flag atop of Mount Sarabachi. And it was that, that raising of the flag having just lost thousands of thousands of men that gave the American people hope, and it confirmed their resolve to continue in the battle and to not give up, and furthermore, to not just give up, but to win, to defeat the enemy. This picture inspired millions, and even to this day, This is the most recognizable photograph in all of World War II and arguably all American battles. More Congressional Medals of Honor were given at the Battle of Iwo Jima than any other battle in modern American history. 27 Congressional Medals of Honor was given out over those 36 days, 22 Marines, and five sailors, 200 navy crosses were awarded the second highest medal of war. Admiral Chester Nimitz, he was the free admiral in charge or the commander in charge of the war efforts in the West Pacific. He said, among those who fought on Iwo Jima, uncommon valor was a common virtue. I'd like to read two Medal of Honor citations from that war. Corporal Charles J. Berry, United States Marine Corps. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as a member of a machine gun crew serving with the 1st Battalion, 26th the Marines, 5th Marine Division. In action against enemy Japanese forces during the seizure of Iwo Jima in the Volcano Islands on 3 March 1945, stationed in the front lines, Corporal Barry manned his weapon with alert readiness as he maintained a constant vigil with the other members of his gun crew during hazardous night hours. When infiltrating Japanese soldiers launched a surprise attack, Shortly after midnight, an attempt to overrun his position, he engaged in a pitched hand-grenade duel, returning the dangerous weapons with prompt and deadly accuracy until an enemy grenade landed in a foxhole. Determined to sa- save his comrades, he unhesitatingly chose to sacrifice his, himself and immediately dived on the deadly missile. Absorbing the shattering violence of the exploding charge in his own body and protecting the others from serious injury. Start-hearted and indomitable, Corporal Barry... Barry fearlessly yielded his own life that his fellow Marines might carry on the relentless battle against a ruthless enemy and his superb valor and unfaltering devotion to duty in the face of certain death reflect the highest credit upon himself and upon the United States Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. Corporal. Tony Stein, United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while serving with Company A, 1st Battalion, 28th Marines, 5th Marine Division, in action against Japanese forces on Iwo Jima in the Volcano Islands, 19 February, 1945, the first man of his unit to be stationed after hitting the beach in the initial assault, Corporal Stein, armed with a personally improvised aircraft-type weapon, provided rapid covering fire as the remainder of his platoon attempted to move into position. When his comrades were stalled, By concentrated machine gun and mortar barrage, he gallantly stood upright and exposed himself to the enemy's view, thereby drawing the hostile fire to his own position and enabling him to observe the location of the furiously blazing hostile guns. Determined to neutralize the strategically placed weapons, he boldly charged the enemy pillboxes one by one and and succeeded in killing 20 of the enemy during the furious single-handed assault. Cool and courageous under the merciless hail of exploding shells and bullets which fell on all sides, he continued to deliver the fire of his skillfully improvised weapon at tremendous rate of speed which rapidly exhausted his ammunition. But undaunted, he removed his helmet and his shoes to expedite his movements ran back to the beach for more ammunition making a total of eight trips under intense uh, and under intense fire and carrying or assisting a wounded man back each time despite the unrelenting savagery and confusion of battle he rendered prompt assistance to his platoon whenever the unit was in position directing the fire of a half-track against the stubborn pillbox until he had effectively and ultimately destruction of the Japanese fortification. Later in the day, although his weapon was twice shot from his hands, he personally covered the withdrawal of his platoon to the company position. Stout-hearted and indomitable, Corporal Stein, by his aggressive initiative, sound judgment and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of tremendous odds, contributed materially to the fulfillment of his mission and his outstanding valor throughout the bitter hours of conflict sustains and enhances the highest tradition of the United States Naval Forces. Wow. War. It brings out the fiercest courage and the most extraordinary bravery. But I would like to read to you one more citation. But it's from a war that has consequences and a death toll like no other battle in the history of the world. It's the war of the souls of men. It's the souls of men that have a reward or damnation for eternity. This war started at the creation of man, and it has been raging on ever since. As of today, there's approximately 7.9 billion people in the world. 65 million people die each year around the world. That comes out to 178,000 a day, 7,400 each hour, and 120 every minute. And our hero, our king, he laid down his life for every single one of them. Command Master Chief Davy wrote the following for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the cost of his own life above and beyond the call of duty. Jesus Christ, the God-man, distinguished himself while operating with the company of 12 men, was serving as savior of the world in a multicultural, hostile environment. As his unit moved through the areas of Egypt, Asia Minor, Israel and the Middle East. They encountered hostile forces from all fronts. Christ, with no regard for his own safety, spread the unwelcome messenger from his commander. On one occasion, he encountered the commander of the enemy forces on a hill and has offered the world for his surrender. He denied the enemy and proceeded to fight in the face of certain death. With the power to forego a humility death, humiliating death on the cross, he proceeded to fulfill the orders of the Father. He was captured by the enemy, stripped, publicly beaten, spit on, whipped to the near point of death, forced to carry his own death cross through the streets of the people he came to save. Jesus Christ's body absorbed spikes through his hands and his feet. Crown of thorns was driven into his skull, but he refused to die until he had absorbed every sin of the world upon himself. Jesus Christ's great personal sacrifice and bravery were in the keeping and the expectations and prophecy of the Bible and to the highest order of the Father in heaven and demands great credit upon all in heaven and on earth. That's our king, gentlemen. That's your king. That's my king. He is way out in front, gentlemen. Paving the way is an example. There has been no one more honorable or more courageous than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, deserving of all the praise and honor. He's the hero and Savior of the world. Now think about this for a moment. Google says that the world's population is about 31% who are Christians, and since it's on the internet, it's probably true. So let's just say for a moment that is, that is true, and I believe within some reasonable accuracy, it's probably right, except for in America, there is the American unsaved Christian. Yeah. But let's say 31% is it. If 178,000 people die per day and only th- 31% of them are saved, gentlemen, that means 122,000 people are going to hell every single day. And if, if, if that doesn't break your heart or shock your conscience, I don't know what will. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Verses 1 through 10 is this story of this wonderful man. His name is... Zacchaeus he was a, a chief tax collector and you know how how much everyone hated those guys he was a chief tax collector and I have no doubt he got the position in which he had because he was robbing and stealing and cheating and getting more money to the people above I'm convinced of that with everything This Zacchaeus had heard about who Jesus was, and he heard about the wonderful works of him. And, you know, he was uh, vertically challenged, the scriptures say. He was, a, he was a short man, and he couldn't see over the crowds. So he saw Jesus's path, and he ran to get in front of Jesus to climb a tree that he might have a face-to-face encounter with the Savior of the world. He knew who this who this man was. And he's like, I've got to have this encounter. I've heard about him. You know what? I, I, I know that this guy has something for me. So he runs out, and Jesus takes notice of him. He looks up and tells Zacchaeus, you know, he says in verse 5, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your home. He recognized that this, this man was so zealous to hear about and to know about the kingdom of God and to know this, this man who came down from the flesh. He has to know. Jesus has been teaching for quite some time about who he is. And so many of those people didn't recognize it. But Zacchaeus, this this corrupt, wicked man, he sees it. So he came down and he received him with joy. But the multitude, it says in verse 7, when the multitude saw it, they all complained, saying, this Jesus, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus told him, Lord, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusations, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Man, he's like, he's like Zacchaeus, you get it. All of these people, these religious leaders, you recognize who you are and you recognize who I am. And because you recognize who I am, you recognize that you are in need of salvation. And here it is. This salvation came to Zacchaeus through repentance. How do we know that? Because the evidence of repentance is taking action. Repentance without evidence has no value not in the kingdom of God he recognized all the wickedness he had done and then he recognized that you know what I'm not even deserving of what you've given to me I'm going to give half of it away Zacchaeus righted all the wrongs and I and I have a hard time believing that this was just a one-time encounter in front of Jesus You know, Zacharias chased down our Lord and was willing to look like a fool just to get in front of him, knowing who he was and the status that he held. He was somebody in the world, even though he was hated. He chased down to have a face-in-face with the maker of heavens and earth, and Jesus showing compassion on him. On this spiritually starving and hungry man who came out from among the crowd and had spent time with him and he had a changed life. And I guarantee you that from that time on it would forever change his life because he made a dedication. I'm gonna give half of my things to the poor and I'm gonna make it right with everybody. Now, I imagine that's gonna be a process. He was the cheap collector. I can't even imagine the list of the people he robbed, stole, and cheated from. It's gonna be a minute before he gets down through that list. It doesn't tell us, but I imagine from that day forward his occupation was honest and it was true for when jesus calls you out of the darkness and you have a face-to-face encounter he changes your life does he not when zacchaeus repented he then took what god had entrusted him with even though it was it was done at an unprosperous way or or an unethical way Everything he had was still by the grace of God, even though he was a wicked heathen. That he takes those things, and I I imagine he takes half of his treasure and he's giving it to the poor. And of course, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think it's a logical conclusion. As he's going out and he's making these rites, he's giving it back. And they're like, who who are you? And what did you do with Zacchaeus? What did you do with that scumbag that's been robbing us? And I guarantee you, he threw men in jail that he was cheating, and they refused to pay. And he's like, I'm a changed man. Why am I doing this? Let me tell you about Jesus. Right? You know, the, the scripture doesn't say that, and I'm not trying to add to the scriptures, but it's a logical conclusion because that's what we've all done. God has changed our lives, and we can't help but tell other people about it. He was the chief tax collector. He was a sinner, a rotten man. You know every single one of those men you know they had to think to themselves this guy's not playing around. You don't you don't you don't change from the type of man he is into the type of man or who he was into the type of man he now is without having some form of encounter, something supernatural. And as he was going out there, he was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and then we we now go into the conference theme text which is starting in verse 11 now as they heard these things he spoke another parable because he was near jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of god would appear immediately now we're on the heels of zacchaeus a changed man And you know they're near Jerusalem, so everybody is thinking if this is the Messiah, he is going to right all the wrongs with the Roman government. He's going to take his throne and he's gonna rule, and we are gonna be set free from the tyrannical government of the Roman soldiers and the and and the king that was in place. But of course, that wasn't going to be the case. He was gonna have to depart. Prophecy had to be fulfilled. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, as he was accustomed to doing. This was right after Zacchaeus, and he's going to use that as a framework to say, let me tell you, look at what this what this young man did, or this man did. God had entrusted him with things, and he and he did he did something well with it. Everyone was expecting him to take that government, but or or Take that position as king. But he was going to be back at another time after his resurrection. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, he said, a certain noble man went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. The King James Version says, Occupy. Until I come. Jesus obviously came from a far off country. He was in heaven with the Father. And the Father sent him down to establish his kingdom. And while this king that went to the far off country gave them something of value. It didn't even cost him anything. He gave them each one mina. Which comes out to about three months worth of wages. In verse 14, it says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Doesn't that sound like the world we live in today? That that this world does not want to be ruled by the king who came to save them. They are content living a life of self-satisfaction, self-gratification to destruction of their spirit we don't want this man to rule over us this is the very thing that would come to fruition later on down the road right John chapter 19 whenever they he was in front of Pilate they were saying away with him away with him crucify him this man shall not rule over us they denied him Then in verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man gained by trading. Jesus is telling them that these servants were going to be given something to invest. That didn't cost them anything. As a matter of fact, it was a huge blessing for them to receive, but he, he's going to come back, and our king is going to come back, and he's going to hold those whom he's entrusted with account for those things, and when he does, he's going to ask that, that question, what have you done with what I have entrusted you with? Verse 16. Then came the first, saying, "Master, your mina has earned ten minas." And he said to him, "Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, "Master, your mina has earned five minas." Likewise, he said, "You also be over five cities." Now, these two servants were both given one mina. Equal, equal level in which they had to invest. But let's be careful here. They both had one mina, but one came back with 10, and one came back with 5. Last night, we, we do men's Bible study on Thursday night. and We're actually going through 1 Corinthians uh Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We hit chapter four last night, and in verse two it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that stewards that one be found faithful. Guys, we're not required to be successful, only faithful. One came back with ten, and one came back with five. So, well, clearly, the guy that came back with, with Tim was more spiritual. He, he loved Jesus more. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the case. Because now what you're doing is you're judging success on, on based off of what you think is tangibly represented there. We're not required to be successful, only faithful. Look at Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah, who was a prophet, once he got his head screwed on right, He got everybody he he came encountered with got saved, right? The whole ship that he was aboard got saved. Hit Nineveh, preached, preached God. Whole town got saved. Contrast Jonah with, say, the prophet Jeremiah. Jonah had... I mean, it, it was like it was like salvation parties everywhere. But with Jeremiah, he preached for thirty years and had not one single conversion in his ministry. He was known as the weeping prophet. So, if we take what what men see as success, Jonah was a rock star. Jeremiah fell flat. But that's not the way it is. That's not how God's economy is. You know, for us as men, we would say it's like, all right, if if Jonah had a conference, we would call up Jeremiah and say, hey, bro, hey, you got to go. You got to go sit in in Jonah's conference. You got to learn some things. He's got some stuff to teach you. He's gotten everybody saved. You got nobody saved. You know, there's there's a little bit of a um, uh, separation there in your ministries. Maybe you could learn something. Maybe we would just write books about it and, and we would charge people, you know, um, uh, conference talks about the ministry of Jonah. But Jeremiah, in God's economy, he was not successful in giving, getting people saved, but he is the shining example of obedience and faithfulness like no other. Can you imagine the ministry of Jeremiah? Just how, how rough it would be. Could you imagine being a pastor without no one getting saved? And the discouragement and the enemy coming in and, and the depression that would, would, would set in? Just constantly day after day grinding for the souls of men. You're breaking. You're watching all of these people die, living in sin but yet he never gave up and he continued pressing towards the prize. The impact of Jeremiah was so great in his faithfulness when Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who is it that men say that I am? So they said, some said John the Baptist, some say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Obviously, Jeremiah had an amazing, successful ministry because they, he, he was one of the three people named as possibly being. No one used Jeremiah by the example. We can't misjudge our ministry. Can't misjudge your ministry. The standard of failure or success has to be determined on your faithfulness and your obedience to God. No matter what the outcome of the results are, You got to think to yourself, it's like, okay, you got a church of a thousand and you got a church of five. Who's the successful pastor? Are you kidding me? Why do we even ask that question? Those five souls, one soul, Jesus left the 99 for the one, and those souls in the five church, I call that a success. Who are we to judge the size of somebody else's congregation or judge the size of someone else's ministry? It's faithfulness, being, being faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You worry about what God's called you to do and do that thing. And God will reward you. One minor gets 10, one mina gets Five. be faithful and it's equal First Samuel chapter 15 Samuel said verse 22 Has the Lord as great delight in birth, birth, burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord Behold to obey is better than sacrifice God's gonna entrust you with certain things, just like he did with these men, this minor. What you do with it is what matters. Be faithful, brothers. You, you, you might not be noticed, you might not be applauded, not, might not be pat on the back. As a matter of fact, it might be the absolute opposite. You might be persecuted and hated. But that's okay, so is Jeremiah. Always ask yourself, "Who are you doing what you're doing for? You're doing it for men? You're doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for the Lord?" What you do with what God has entrusted to you matters to the Lord. Who cares what other other people think or what they're doing? Verse 20. Then came another, saying, "Master, here is your mind, of which I have kept." Put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You're a harsh man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to them, you know, here it is. You know, obviously he has the, the description and his, what he views of God or what he views this king is completely wrong. He's like, you're a harsh man. Are you kidding me? No, he wasn't. He came to save the world. He's not a harsh man. You're just stubborn. You didn't take the time to get to know him. You knew there was an expectation, but, but you, you are now using this as an excuse that you're a harsh man, and I didn't want to lose what, what you gave me. So I put it in a handkerchief, and I wasted it and I squandered it. So Jesus said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. Jesus isn't agreeing with him. He's not saying, you're right, I am a harsh man. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness that endures forever. He said, fine, if that's what you thought, I'm gonna judge you by your own conscience. Out of your own own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a harsh man, Collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He's like, the very least you could have done, put it in a stupid handkerchief. You could have just put it in the bank and let it collect. I mean, you didn't even have to do anything, really. But yet you are in rebellion with the expectation that I gave you. And he said to those who stood by, verse 24, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said, master, he's already got 10 minas. For I said to you that everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here... Those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and they slay and slay them before me. You can't be a conscientious objector in God's world. You gotta pick a choice. You know, it's like, yeah, but he only has one and he's got ten. Is it that's not fair? Well, it's not about fair, it's about right and wrong. It's about righteousness and sin. God has given you something freely. And for you to not do something, the question is, is do you really believe what you believe or what you say you believe? Those who had nothing, those who were lazy, those who were in rebellion to God, judgment day is coming they will be, be slain, Brothers, 122,000 people are going to hell every single day. Are you being faithful with what God has entrusted with you? You have time, treasures, and talents. Talents being the spiritual gift given to you by God. Are you investing them into the kingdom? Are you doing something with them? Or are you just hanging out? You could go to church all you want and still go to hell. Are you doing something with what God has entrusted you to do? Are you even in the battle? Spiritual death all around us, in your families, in your workplaces, even in the church. People who are, who are just going through the motions. Their salvation has never been real to them because they are comfortable in their lifestyle, but they're checking the American box of going to church. Spiritual death all around us, and the enemy hates you. He wants to destroy you, and he wants, to, wants you to sit on the bench. He wants you to take your mind and keep it in the bench um, in your little handkerchief wants you to be in the rear with the gear having no impact he doesn't even care that if you worship him as long as he keeps you distracted and keeps you from worshiping God he's got you you could be complacent you have to ask yourself do you even know what the, what the sound of enemy gunfire is have you heard it Have you experienced it? Is it happening to you daily? I would argue that if if, if you're not experiencing it, you need to decide and do an evaluation of whether or not you're actually using your talents for the kingdom, using your minas. Because I assure you, when you start doing the work of God, you become a threat to the enemy, and then the battle becomes... Evident, quickly. But as long as you're sitting on the sidelines like a sissy, you are going to never be on the enemy's radar. You're either going through a battle, you're coming out of it, or you're going into it, whenever you're a soldier for Christ. You must be trained up in the word of God in order to defend yourself and actually do counter-assaults when the enemy and the people come and say all kinds of lies and wicked things or false doctrines you you've been trained in peacetime for wartime that's what church is church is the training for the battleground that happens outside these four walls the biggest lie of the american church is that the pastors are supposed to do the preaching so no pastors Well, the word tells us in Ephesians that their job is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You guys are supposed to be doing the preaching. Pastors are doing the teaching and the equipping. So you get get, get your body armor on and you head out there and you do battle for the souls of men. You have to ask yourself, what are you fighting for? Who are you fighting for? You can only know the battlefield if you're in it. It can't look from the sidelines and understand what it's like to get shot at. You may know what it's like intellectually, but until you experience it, you'll never fully understand the war that's actually going on. We fight for the king. We fight for the brother to the left and to the right of you. We count on one another, we need each other, we have to have each other's back. You, you, you know, you, you can realize, you spend enough time with somebody, a fellow soldier, a fellow warrior. I remember doing patrols with my unit. Rather I was in the Marine Corps, we we're, we're here at Albuquerque. You could tell somebody in the dark just by the silhouette of their outline of their body. You can tell how they wear their gear, their armor. You can tell who they are by the way they walk. You can't even see them. Because you spend time with each other. You train with each other. We hear your fellow brothers, your fellow soldiers. You, ha- you, you should be able to recognize what their gifts and their talents and responsibilities are. Are they the gunner? Are they the A-gunner? Are they the team leader? Are they the riflemen? Are they the breacher? What's their skills and talents? Do they have the gift of wisdom, word of knowledge? they have a gift of tongues? What about love? Can you recognize your brother in the dark by how he wears his body armor? You have to know each other intimately in a very special way. So when the enemy comes, that you could strategically lock arms with that brother and use the gifts that God has given you. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I'm just, you know what? I, I wish growing a beard was my spiritual gift because, you know, I knock it out of the park. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I only got a handful of actual spiritual gifts. I don't, got, I, don't, I don't got 21 of them. And none of you have 21 of them. But whenever we all come together as the body of Christ, everybody has every spiritual gift and we're using it for the edification of the body and for the spiritual warfare that happens. I need you because I don't have your gifts. And you need me because I don't have your gifts. And we're doing it because we have a king that has entrusted us with the mysteries of the gospel that separates us from eternal damnation or eternal paradise. We have to know one another. We have to train with one another. It happens at events like this. It happens every Sunday, every Wednesday, every men's group, every men's prayer. That's where the training happens and you get to know each other. And I could tell you I love you, but it don't mean anything until you're in the thick of the battle and you call me in the middle of the night and I go to your house. Because that's what brothers do. That's what teammates do. We take care of each other. I, we, we got each other's back. It's like, brother, I see some sin in your life. And you know what? Honestly, he doesn't even see it himself. He's on a slippery slope talking and flirting with a girl. And he's married. And he doesn't even realize that that's what he's doing. Until it's too late, of course. And he's sucked in. You know, two stories. I was talking to, uh, I think, Wade... Albuquerque is one of the most violent cities in, in in America, and while I worked up there, I had, you know, we involved in about 13 shootouts in the 16 years I was there. But one gentleman, I was on point. I was uh, some guy who's wanted for murder, selling drugs, and it was a high-risk search warrant. I was point man. I was going to be the first one in the door, right? And you think to yourself, you know, it's like, ah, point man. That's a guy I want to be. Right, you know, I'm gonna go through the door first. I wanna face danger, right, those adrenaline junkies. I, w- I wanna be the man and, and I'm gonna do my job and I'm gonna do it well. My buddy Jim, he was gonna be last in the door. Who wants to be last? All right? I mean, by the, by the time you get 18 men in a house, by the time you get in there, it's already done with, you know, well, that's not no fun. So I cross the door, I turn, I got my rifle, I'm pointing into the door, Jim comes around my side because there's windows and doors that are further down on on the house building. He's gonna be last man, but I'll tell you what, he is absolutely critical because had he not been there, when we started banging on the door and the guy came out the window with a gun, he would have shot me in the back of the head where he was, was absolutely essential. It may not be glorious going, being, the, being the last guy through the door, but where every person plays their part, kingdom work happens. Not only that, people who train, I was working undercover as in the uh, intelligence sergeant, um, narcotics guys needed, uh, needed some extra bodies so I was gonna be on the arrest team. Um, my buddy Dave, um, I think it was 10 years ago, uh, 2012, just last month, he and I still you know, text each other on our anniversary date, brother, I love you. Thank you for saving my life. And he'll text me back, thank you for saving my life. See, Dave Saladin was kind of one of those ninja cops, right? He, he knew he knew jujitsu and ninjitsu and whatever, you know? and he was in the driver's seat selling dope to this this guy super high-ranked gun- gang member of 18th street um uh I won't I won't say his name I st- still remember his name in my head but um so anyway the wire goes bad I don't hear that he's got a gun in the car the bad guy um Dave hits the hits the the bus signal so I do uh a vehicle assault, right? I'm going straight to the passenger door. I'm going to open it up. I've got my gun in my hand. I've got placards. I look homeless, but I got a police vest. Um, You know, police department, let me see your hands. And I could see through the window that something was bad. In undercover work, you never turn cop unless somebody's life is in danger. And they're in there wrestling, and I can kind of slightly see, so I'm already like thinking, what in the world? I've done hundreds of vehicle assaults in training and in real life. Dave was a, was, a, was a jiu-jitsu master. Man, the enemy didn't know what hit him. I come running up. I open the door, and Dave's telling me he's got a gun, and he's got one hand over his hands, and he's just elbowing him in the face. And I jump in, on and, you know, I, I sit on this dude's lap, and I could feel his breath on my face, and Dave's telling me he's got a gun, and I said did you say he has a gun? He goes, yes, he has a gun. I've been just cool and collective, and so, um, so I put my, my pistol in his chest, and um, that was the end of it, of the fight. fight ended, we um, were able to get safe, put him outside, the ambulance came, sco- scooped him up, um, his lifeless body on the, on the ground. The enemy had absolutely no idea what he was getting into because you had two men who took their occupation seriously who were at the highest level of training and me and my brother went home this guy whenever I opened the door his plan was to turn over and shoot me in the face and as he's wrestling with the gun and so Dave saved my life love that man with all my heart Now he's wrestling for the gun for his life and is able to return the favor. When you have two brothers who take their calling seriously in the Lord and they're anointed by the Holy Spirit and they have trained together And you put those two men in a room and where two or more are gathered in agreement in his name, he is with you. There's nothing that the enemy can do to stop you. Jeff said it, that, that life speaking voice, that life speaking spirit lives inside of us. I couldn't have solved that situation by myself and Dave couldn't have, but us together And there's nothing you and your brothers are going to go through or have been through that you can't get through together. And I promise you, the gates of hell shall not prevail in your life when you have one another. God has given you your gifts and your talents. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to do what he's called you to do? You have the gospel, the life-saving gospel. You're going to take that knowledge and go put it into somebody else at a rate faster than 122,000 a day. And Lord, tonight as we close this study, I already know because we're men. There are some here in this room something's holding them back. It's fear. It's sin. It's shame. It's inadequacy. It's depression. It's an inappropriate relationship. Lord, I know there's men here and I pray that you would move upon their heart right now. I pray that there would be a movement of the Holy Spirit that is thick and felt. And just as every eye's closed and every head's bowed, guys, I promise you, you're here for a reason. There's no mistake about it, but you're not gonna hear what God has to say to you this weekend until you get your life right with him tonight. And I pray if that's you here tonight, Make it right tonight. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Put your pride away. Nobody cares about your pride. We all love one another. And if you're here, I'm going to ask you to come down here right now. Meet me at the foot of this step. And I, pray, and, and I want to pray for you. Let's put those things at the cross tonight that you might be able to hear clearly tomorrow. And I know you're out there. Take that step of faith and come on down, fellas. Come and join these men. God's moved in your heart. There's no shame and no embarrassment. As a matter of fact, it takes more courage to walk down here than it does to sit where you are. Everybody wants to see a man of courage. We see men who win the Congressional Medal of Honor who's willing to jump on a hand grenade to save their brothers, but we can't walk 20 feet down the step to admit that we got a problem, we got some issues, and that we want God to solve those in our behalf. This is is where wars are won, right here, right now, gentlemen. Make your move fellas. Have that courage. Amen. Keep coming, brothers. Keep coming. Where are you at? Where are you at, Jeff? You here? Come on, fellas. Keep on coming down. I know there's more of you out there. The enemy wants to stop men from following God. Maybe maybe you're okay with where you're at, but you recognize that maybe you haven't been using your gifts as faithful as you ought to. Come on down, fellas. Can I I confess something? I'm with you guys. I got stuff in my life. I, I got some garbage. I need to... I need to put at the throne as well. Nothing that's disqualified me, but I know my wicked heart. Come on, gentlemen, keep coming. We'll we'll wait all night. God wants to do a new work in your life, guys. He wants to do something fresh. Hey, we all need an oil change this is what's wonderful when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth he's faithful and just to forgive each one of us he cleanses us from unrighteousness This is the most beautiful thing I see all year, guys, is, is men's men's ministry, Friday night, those laying down their, their heart to the king. Come on, fellas, keep coming. I know you're there. You're wrestling in your heart. I promise you it wasn't the barbecue. It's the Holy Spirit. Don't deny it. Amen. Come on down, brother. Love you, bro. So many times we think that a miracle happens when we when we walk on water. You see the blind sea. This is this is the miracle of, of salvation, guys. This is the hand of God working in the hearts of men and it's in the hearts of men in which he is called to to lead the church, to lead the family, to be the leader in the workplace, to stand for righteousness, to preach the gospel, to be courageous. So many people think that they have to be in a gunfight to be courageous. It's courageous standing in front of your brother saying, I got to get things right with God. Amen. Come on, brother. Amen. Come on, brother. All right. Let's go before the Lord, gentlemen. You in your heart... Lord, I want to pray for these men here. There's so many men up here. They're here for so many different reasons, Lord. The fact that those who are here that are unsaved, their very presence is their confession. They believe in their heart, otherwise they wouldn't be here. Lord, there's those who are here that are looking for healing, physically and spiritually. Lord God, I know there's men here who are ashamed, and they're guilty is, is, and, and depression is just overrunning them. I pray for a, a Holy Spirit moment in their heart and into their minds. I pray that you would give them that, that fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, there's those that are here that are not being faithful. And obedient to the treasures Lord I pray for every heart here that you meet them exactly where they are why they're here and Lord if it's forgiveness we have your word that says you have forgiven us Lord your word tells us to desire the best gifts Lord if they don't know those gifts I pray that you would reveal it to them so that they can use what you've given them Lord, I pray that they would leave here changed, renewed, strengthened, having a better understanding of what you have called them to do. I pray that when they leave here, they have the courage to stand for righteousness in an ungodly world. I pray that you would relieve them of all the guilt, the shame, as they put their sin at their cross. Lord, we commit this time to you, our life to you. I pray that they hear your voice not only tonight, but tomorrow and every day thereafter until you take us home or you return. Lord, we love you and we put these requests at your feet. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen, brother.